0: Welcome to the Chef John Podcast. I'm Andrew Gravani. I'm here with Chef John Mitsowich. How you doing, everybody? So we have some themes tonight, and I think the two themes for this evening are disasters and challenges. We're going to start with disasters tonight because I feel that we want to warm the audience up with something really funny. So Chef John, lead us off tonight. Give me something that tells me that you're a human being and that stuff goes wrong for superhuman YouTubers as well. They certainly do. Although I will say this uh, tragic story
1: happened long before not only I was a quote unquote celebrity on YouTube, but way before YouTube, I was invited to help out a uh, girlfriend or what I was hoping would be a future girlfriend uh, with a dinner party she was having. A few friends were coming over. And she said, uh, I'm going to pick up some shrimp and we're going to just do an easy, quick uh, pasta. And, you know, I'm just, I'm not super confident. Would love some help. I said, of course, no problem. I'll be over early. So I get over there and um, I see the package of pasta on the table. Looks good. She's got the water boiling. She shows me the shrimp. Now, the first issue is she had four people coming over plus us, six people total. And she bought like eight shrimp, like not even close to the amount of shrimp you need. Did she season the water? She uh, did not season the water. I made sure there was plenty of salt in it, though, before I started boiling. All right, good. uh, As any good chef would. And so anyway, my first challenge was, how am I going to stretch, like, literally a shrimp? So I was like, you know what we should do? We should chop the shrimp up. And we'll do that. We'll mix it into the cook pasta. It'd be like, you know, everyone gets a little bit. So I kind of, without shaming her, embarrassing her that, you know, man, you cheap, this, you're This really a cheap uh, chef here. You got to get enough shrimp for the whole party. So that was fine. So I thought that was going to be the, you know, sort of the semi-disaster averted of the evening. But the problem is, and my mistake, um, friends arrive, a couple of drinks, ready to cook dinner. She already had the water going, crank it up. It's boiling. I throw the pasta in, give it a stir. And I got the other mise en place ready to toss with it, the shrimp, we had some herbs, whatever. And then I realized the pasta we're cooking is uh, gluten-free vegan pasta which you know 20 and whatever years ago was not what it is today. That was even a thing? Yeah, that was a thing in San Francisco. Come on. Oh, They've that's, true. That. that's right. They've had since forgot, the 70s. I
0: forgot of San Francisco. Have you heard of have you heard of hippies? Yes, for context. Gluten-free Trying to move out of the friend zone and into the, yes, okay. Now, yeah, and like
1: I said, the technology has come a long way. It's actually edible these days. Back then, it was horrific, which would have been a challenge had she had a colander with which to drain the pasta, which I did not think to look for until one minute before it was done. And so I'm like, can I have the colander? What's that? It's a thing with the holes in it. Oh, no, she doesn't have one of those. So now I have to use tongs over the sink, trying to let the water kind of run out with the lid and the tongs holding the the pasta back. But by this time, because it's going so slow, this gluten-free vegan pasta has now started to fall apart because there's like what's holding it together. I don't know. I still don't know what holds this. There's no eggs. You know, so it's just now it looks like (laughs) Spetzel. Spetzel meets not properly cooked oatmeal. And I finally get it strained, if you can call it that, because it's still like 40% water. And I dump that into a bowl and I mix the shrimp and because they're so small. The heat from the pasta is going to cook the shrimp, except it's not really pasta anymore. It's a porridge. It's polenta. It's polenta. <laughs> it's it, So I wish it was polenta. That would have been cornmeal. I would have. I could have worked with that. Yes. Well, anyway, here I am. Now, mind you, as I'm mixing this up, just flop sweat, just panic attack, just full-blown. She's out in the other room giving him my bio. Chef, met the chef, San Francisco Opera House, the unbelievable game. You should say cook this, cook that. Anyway, so now I gotta walk out and set this bowl of what I just described in front of these people that she is just. Just really over promised. Like, had I pulled this off and she had regular pasta and a colander and seven shrimp per person, would have been like, wow, you really over promised there. Was it just okay? But imagine the horror of me, again, trying to impress her. That's the whole reason I'm there. I don't, you know. Yeah, of course. No apologies to her friends. I wasn't that concerned about their happiness. <laughs> so I bring this out and I set it down and I sit there and They were the most polite people you'd ever want to meet. Absolutely pretended. It was not just horrific, just on every level, taste, texture, appearance, brutal. But I was just dying because, as you can imagine, you know how horrible it is. And she's, of course, horrified because she's had me come over to help her because she's probably thinking, you know, I could have done that. (laughs) I could have figured out how to how to put that on the table. And you can't really, you can't sit there going, you know, you didn't have a colander. And what was I supposed to do? You didn't tell me the pasta was not real spaghetti. It looked like noodles when I threw it in. It didn't, it know, just like a wheat or something pasta. I wasn't paying attention. Uh, you know, and a couple of drinks beforehand don't help the perception. But uh, anyway, that uh, was an important lesson because anytime I've ever cooked in a strange kitchen, I always now go do the inventory do they have tongs? Do they have colanders? Do they have a thermometer to test the meat? Like I still wake up in a cold sweat about that meal because it was just so embarrassing for her, for I. And take a wild guess that we, if we became a couple or not.
0: Oh yeah, that that was that's a pretty foregone
1: conclusion. Yeah, that was that did not work. That part did not work that out. It didn't work out. I had no hope after
0: that point. No, no, no. You were done. Yeah, I was done. We started with our disaster story. There's plenty more where that came from, but we also, you know, there are some times when you figure something out or you do something that you're really proud of. And I want to also kind of lead Chef John down this road a little bit today and talk about some of the challenges that we overcame in doing the things we do. So I'm going to throw that one at you. Tell me all about a challenge. I love this topic, this question, because my first great
1: culinary challenge of my career uh, actually launched my career. I, I was a dishwasher at a restaurant located in the back stretch of a uh, racetrack, horse racing track in Western New York, uh, Finger Lakes Racetrack. And all the customers, uh, clients were the owners of the horses mostly, some of the, you know, some of the jockeys, people who worked at the track it was not open to the public. So uh, I was a dishwasher and of course, what's every dishwasher's dream to not wash dishes. make more money, get to talk to waitresses as as they were called back in the day. Uh, And of course that's a line cook. So you're, you know, I was always looking for my spot. Any, anyway, one day uh, one of the cooks gets hurt, literally the only cook on and the manager who was the aunt of my best friend, how I got the dishwasher job uh, is trying to call someone in. There's only like a half hour left in service. And I say, you know what? I can do this let me end, finish the shift. It'll be cool. I've always, you know, so, okay, no problem. How do you get hurt? How do you, how do you get hurt? What do you do? What happened? Cuts himself on I think it was on a meat slicer, you know, classic, just, you know, I didn't really see him all, all the, just blood on a table and he's gone. So uh, anyway, she's like, well, okay, we're going to let you we'll give it a go. Uh, be careful, Getting low on a few things, end of the shift. Now, of course, the most important clients would come in at the end of this uh, closing time. it was always like these rich course owners, impossible to please, not the most polite people. And they you know come in the last table it was ended up being I think it was four people order the turkey special, which was our special that day, just basically hot turkey, Thanksgiving style, sliced turkey, stuffing, mashed potato gravy, so forth. Um, and I tell them we have enough because I went and checked. I'm putting the place together. they're waiting for their food and I realized the thing I didn't check, Was the stuffing and I have enough for uh like two and a half maybe three plates not the fourth and I just I cannot screw this up this has to be perfect so I don't know I went into you know in sports they say things just go into slow motion yes everything slows down and you just weave your way to the basket. And it's like, it's it's literally in stop motion. That never happened for me, which is why I do this instead of playing base It never happened with me in sports either. <laughs> it, it hasn't happened in cooking though. And it happened that day because a few months earlier was actual Thanksgiving. And I remember my mom make would make stuffing and I used to watch her. I don't know if I'd made it by that point. And it was just bread cubes, dried bread cubes with the stock and the vegetables. So I have this, epiphany. I'm pretty sure I didn't know that word back then, but that's what I had. So I run to the salad bar and I grab a couple handfuls of croutons from the salad bar and I toss them in a bowl and I run to the end of the salad bar where we have chicken noodle soup. And I strain a couple cups of chicken noodle soup into these croutons. So now I have wet croutons, chickeny stock. I run back into the kitchen. I throw in a pinch of dried sage, which I remember my mom used, some black pepper, some salt, uh, you know, an S load of butter. I give it a quick mix. I throw it on the flat top, which is, you know, 700 degrees, where you cook the bacon and, and, the, and the pancakes and so forth. And, and I put one of those grill weights on it, and I go back, and I start putting the place together, knowing I'm a, you know, one order short. And by the time I had, you know, this six, seven minutes, by the time I had slice of turkey and put everything together. I ran back to the flat top and I scraped up this half inch thick sludge of, and it was like the best stuffing I'd ever (laughs) tasted in my life. It was so much better than the three portions I was about to put up that I actually mixed it together with the leftover of that and ended up with four gorgeous portions of stuffing, plate it up, gravy it up, sent it out, Maybe they waited an extra four or five minutes, nothing major. They didn't really notice. And they complained about everything and I'm watching to me and I'm just so incredibly proud of myself, even though no one was able to really see what I did. Like no one saw the genius of the emergency croutons <laughs> in the bowl with the soup. Um, although the, the aunt, the, you know, the manager that let me have my shot, She's like, wow, they really like it. They said it was just, you know, they really enjoyed. So then I told her the story. It's like, well, because she was like, kind of saw me on the flat top, which would have been weird for a sliced turkey. So I told her the story. So she kind of secondhand got to hear my uh, my 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 big moment. And you know, about a week week and a half later, um, someone left. I, I got the line cook job, and I was permanently out of the out of the dish dish tub. And uh, that basically started my career. That's amazing. So it was, uh, I call it racetrack stuffing. Um, It just, it was like in a second, I just was like, okay, I need more. I need a little more stuffing. I got croutons on the salad bar. I know I got hot stock, not turkey stock, but it's got celery and carrots and onions in it. I'll just go around the noodles. And it was like anything fried with butter on a flat top is going to be good. And it crust, it was so, it crusted up. It looked almost exactly like the stuff I was trying to reproduce.
0: Have you ever recreated
1: that? Uh, yes. Actually, funny you ask. Uh, that I have done that before. Just when we want like a quick starchy side for some leftover chicken or something, I'll just take some old stale bread, fry it. Like, you know, you make fresh croutons, yep. like for penzanella, would you fry with this olive oil and then toss it. Um, I've done that. A little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a broth, pinch of herbs, some butter fried up. Uh, these days, the kids call it savory bread pudding. So we didn't we didn't call it back then. It was it was racetrack stuffing.
0: Every episode, we're going to have some special features here on the Chef John Podcast, and one of them, of course, as any of you who know Chef John will know, some of his catchphrases, and one of them is that you are the boss of your sauce. And how I would like to interpret this, and how I would like you to see it, is as your daily affirmation from Chef John. So Chef John, I'm trying to be the boss of my sauce. Tell me about recipe following. Well, recipe following,
1: I, I, I like to tell people uh, the best way to screw up a, a written recipe uh, is to follow it. And, and what I mean by is exactly verbatim, like they're in charge of what you're about to eat for dinner, not you. Uh, which I think is how a lot of people, especially novice cooks, uh, approach cooking. They find a recipe, they want to make whatever, tuna casserole, find a recipe, make it, follow it step-by-step, ingredient right down to the teaspoon, and then they may or may not like it. And I have a feeling that at no point during that process did they think, do I really want that many green peas in my tuna casserole? I don't really like green peas. Can I just put a little bit? But And it's weird because they almost feel like they're not allowed to. So, you know, for me, the boss of your sauce philosophy of life is at every point in a recipe or other situation. But anytime we're talking about recipes this time, you get to a point where there's a decision to make as far as an amount, uh, a texture, how crispy, they mean by crispy, how thick they mean by reduced sauce till thick. What do you think they mean when it says till a shiny glaze forms on your teriyaki salmon, whatever. Um, these are the moments where you assume control. And every time you do that, the more you do that, your cooking skills just increase exponentially. It's, it's like a whole different world you unlock when you actually take responsibility for the food, for the sauce in this, in this metaphor, um, by not necessarily assuming it's wrong. I'm not saying like, all right, I got a recipe. I'm not following anything. It's like, well, then don't use the recipe, but every point in the recipe where you need to actually make some decisions about whether you do want that much, or you should cook that long, or it should be that dry or wet or loose or tight or whatever you're dealing with. Um, that, that's what I want people to remember is no one's in control except you. And there's the the wrong way and the way you did it. And that's like, that's the takeaway. Um, so that's boss of your sauce philosophy 101. It's fine to follow the in- ingredient amounts so you know what to buy at the store. Uh, th- that is helpful. But then when you're cooking the chili...
0: Maybe put in half the cayenne, taste it, and see if you well, want to. Well, there it is. It. You, you just said it. You got to taste it. And I do, I do think that there's the idea that you need to have ownership over the decisions that you're going to make with the things that are going to affect you, right? So your recipe is Chef John's recipe, and you developed that recipe because it's the way you like to do it. Now, right. those things are a guideline. All instructional aspects of things that we're taking, especially from experts are quite often just guidelines. And I have a story too, a boss of your sauce sort of story. When I teach photography, I often get people asking me effectually what my recipe is. What are my camera settings? What is my ISO? What is my shutter speed? What kind of light did I use? What kind of filter did I use? And all these different things that people are asking me about how I got this picture. And when I'm in a workshop situation, what I do is I set up a shot and I give my camera that I just set up everything. I set up the lighting. I set up the, the camera settings. I set up everything. And I hand the camera to every student in the class. And I make them take a picture. And then I take a picture. And wouldn't you know it, every single one of those pictures is subtly different. And it's because they are the boss of their sauce, right? They are injecting their, themselves into the image, right? Same way what you're saying about your, your, you know, ultimately about recipes is that recipes are guidelines, but ultimately you have to bring some of yourself to the table. So I think from the perspective of somebody who cooks for a living and somebody who takes pictures for a living, the philosophy is generally the same. You need to follow some guidelines and then bring some of yourself to the table. So be the boss of your sauce. Amen.